today, you've got a lot of stuff in your bulletin this morning. The, uh, there's a number of announcements there. Look them over. Make sure you know what's going on. Call somebody if you don't. You uh, should have a white bookmark for Thessalonians and what we're doing, what we're covering. And so you want to put that, mark your spot in Thessalonians so you can get there quickly. You also have a salmon-colored, if you have the small one, if you have the large one, it's white, because we only have white paper in the really big size. Um, uh, For most of you, you'll have a salmon color. This is a background. It's got a map on the back, and uh, I didn't want to spend a lot of time in the background, so I'm just putting it in there so you can read what this is all about. And uh, you want to get out the uh, sermon outline so you can follow along. It's very interesting. I I had sort of forgotten uh, as I was preparing this and looking back. uh, This was this text is the first text I ever preached on in a church that wasn't at school or something like that. And uh, so I went back and and I and I took a few things from that old sermon, but most of it I. Uh, set aside. <laughs> I looked at it. I was like, oh, man. You know, I don't like my old sermons, you know. So, they, uh, but there were a few good things in there, and hopefully God used it at that time and with those people. And uh, it, was, it was a little tiny church in Braintree, Massachusetts, where I was a student supply preacher. And uh, there's... I don't know, 12, 15 people in the church, something like that, and very small, and they'd already announced that they were closing, and they needed somebody to preach there the last few months of that church's time, and, and so I was that guy, and, uh, and they were very loving, and uh, we had a long trip to get there, and so the, most of the time they fed us, um, and... Uh, so I have nothing but good memories about that little church. First Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's just 10 verses. You want to turn in your Bibles or follow along uh, in your outline. Let's hear the Word of God. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere 
so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to your word again this morning, and we find that we need simple things, things that we take for granted. Lord, once again, open our ears to truly hear these things. And we ask uh, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that this word would be a great encouragement to us this morning to exercise faith, hope, and love in our daily lives. Do this for each of us this morning in his name and for his glory. Amen. It's pretty obvious in our society today that man can build a big church. Today there are mega churches with weekly attendance over 10,000 people. In the United States alone, there's about 50 of these churches. There's many more that claim that in membership, but in terms of actual real life bodies showing up and sitting down in the seats, there's about 50. And while all of them are big, not all of them are biblical. Some are, but more aren't. But let's be honest, there's lots of other churches out there which aren't big. Uh, they're, they're not very big, uh, and nor are they biblical. There are small unbiblical churches, and there are small churches which are very biblical. And apparently, size doesn't have much to do with being biblical. Although it's often presented as if being big was directly related to being biblical. We hear people say something like, our church has grown because God really blessed us. They don't say that if it's some cult church that's growing. And perhaps they wouldn't feel right saying, our church has grown because we entertain really well. I mean, a circus can draw a lot of people. Doesn't mean it's biblical. And to be honest, it's really not hard to figure out which is which. <coughs> Some of these churches are man-centered. They're trying to accomplish man's goals using man's strength with man's means and ultimately done for the glory of man. And all around us, we can see the effects of a man-centered church. <coughs> hmm. Little tight. <sighs> we live in an age where many churches, particularly large and well-funded churches, have become... Churches have become entertainment centers. I was reading in an article just the other day that some of the most professional auditoriums are not found in the theaters in New York and in Broadway, 
but in big churches. They have some of the most professional lighting and sound and all the production values. And they can give slick performances to growing numbers of unproductive churchgoers. And if getting numbers is the goal, this has proven to work, particularly with my generation. However, with the younger generation, uh, pretty much those under 30, this has been shown to drive that generation away from the church. And it's resulted in a huge identity crisis in the church today. And so churches are searching for an identity that works. What works is defined as what gets people through the door. What works is not defined as what the Bible tells us to do. And so some people say the church, and there's all sorts of people writing about this, and they say the church should be consumer-driven. Survey the market, discover what people want, and give it to them. It's like having the patients write the prescriptions, being oblivious to the real illness, and thus never finding a cure for what ails them. Others think the church should be culture-driven, which is just a variation on the first model, where the church has embraced entertainment as the means to growth. Take the culture's latest form of amusement, put a spiritual spin on it, and maybe the people will think they're in an off-Broadway production with all its slickness and polish. Still, others envision the church as being felt needs-driven. Address the apparent obvious needs of people, tell them how to find self-esteem, significance, and success. Whatever you do, stay positive. No one wants to hear about sin, hell, or wrath. And finally, others with good intentions want to be purpose-driven. Get your vision, determine your objectives, define your strategies, develop your marketing plan, and you're in business. And that's exactly right, because you'll find yourself in a business, not in a church. Now, a brief moment of honesty. I have tried most of this stuff. And much to my frustration, and much to the frustration of thousands of pastors and churches, and much to the frustration of even some of the folks who pioneered this stuff, for the most part, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work, that is, if you define what works as that which enables and equips Christians to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And some of these churches have recognized it and even said publicly, you know, we're not doing that whole grace and knowledge thing. We got a lot of people, but they don't know Jesus. And so we got to change. And of course, everybody that copied them is now in a full panic because they're like, oh no, the people we copied aren't going to be doing that, and what are we going to do? And So a lot of writing going on about this, what to do. And another brief moment of honesty Not everything these people say is wrong or bad. There are lots to learn from a few of these mega churches, but you have to be very discerning. And a big part of the problem is is that we, the church, have forgotten that Jesus told us in John 15, 16, and 17 that we would be in the world, but that we were not to be of the world. The world is evil. It's run by the evil one. And we're not supposed to try and be like the world. We're supposed to be like Jesus. We're supposed to remember we're citizens of heaven. And much of the church today is so enamored with style and size, they've forgotten to pursue spirituality and substance. People say, well, you know, it's easy for you to criticize people bigger than you because you're not very big, you know, 200, 250, something like that. 
Actually, we're at the 90th percentile. So by any standard, we're on the high end already. You know, one of the harshest criticisms I think I ever heard of the American church came from a Chinese man who is wrestling with religion. And he wrote this article, I think it was in Christianity Today, on this process he went through trying to figure out all the religions. And he ultimately came down that he thought Christianity had the most truth, but he had a real problem with Christianity. And he said, when I go to a Buddhist temple, the Buddhist clergy I meet are holy men. When I go to an American church, the Christian clergy I meet are entrepreneurs. I think that's one of the most damning criticisms I've ever heard of the church. The church is called not to be man-centered, but to be God-centered. We're supposed to be focusing not on ourselves, but on Christ. And what makes the church biblical is not worldly success, regardless of how you define it, but the presence and power of God in that place. And in a church where the driving force is God, he's not working primarily through events, programs, entertainment, or even strategic plans. But rather, he's primarily working through his word and through the sacraments by his spirit in the changed lives of his people. God fills people, not plans. He indwells believers, not buildings. He anoints preachers, not performance. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with buildings or plants, but when they become our chief pursuit, they become spiritual cul-de-sacs leading nowhere. And as we begin to search the scriptures to see what God wants for the church, a good place to begin is with this church in Thessalonica. And so with that in mind, let's start our study of First and Second Thessalonians, which is teaching us about life for the long haul. Just to keep you paying attention, we're going to find out a little bit about this church and see if this is a good place to begin. The church in Thessalonica was founded by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey, and we can read about it in Acts 17. The high school Sunday school class we started, we used to uh, say what it, talk about the passage that was preached last week. Now we're going to study the passage that's being preached this week, so we're getting in beforehand. So we actually had time to read all that and see what had happened there. And we know from uh, the rest of the Thessalonian books that this is a church that's built on the preaching and teaching of sound doctrine, and it's nurtured with a pastoral ministry of love and devotion. And though it's filled with people who are less than perfect, nevertheless, it's a church where God's spirit was at work. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on the background, which is uh, why I enclosed that handy-dandy bulletin insert, um, which lays all of that out and has some of the themes of the book and key verses, things like that. It's got a little map so you can see where Thessalonica is. So let's dive into this book. Paul begins by giving us an overview of this church. And it's very interesting, making no mention of their numerical size or their worship style or their long-term strategy. He instead focuses on the substance of the gospel and the genuine spirituality of the people. So let's see what it is that Paul is telling us about this congregation. He starts at the beginning, a good place to start, and that's by telling us about converted people. Look at verse 1. Converted 
people. Clearly, the first thing that identifies a church which honors God is that it's filled with people who've actually been converted to Christ. We sort of assume that. And without people who are truly born again, the church is just a religious country club. But the miracle of new life in Christ places believers into union with Christ and thus spiritually united to each other. And this is the way it was in the church in Thessalonica. Verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Key word, in. Grace to you and peace. The church possessed a vital spiritual union with God as it was identified as being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To be in God means they have entered into a personal relationship with God through faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the sovereign work of regeneration, getting a new heart, by the Holy Spirit, every redeemed sinner enters into union with Christ. We see that uh, very clearly in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so we are united with Christ. And if this is true, and we profess that it is, then the church is more than just another organization. It's a living organism through which the Spirit of God can work. And this infusion of divine life into regenerated people is what happened in Thessalonica when Paul preached the gospel there. We can see that in Acts 17. It says there, the first few verses, Now they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So Paul goes in there three Sundays in a row, or, or three Saturdays in a row, it's the Jewish Sabbath, and he reasons with them from the Scriptures. He brings the Word of God to them. Verse 3, Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So because of the preaching of Paul and the work of the Holy Spirit, this church is built with the proper foundation. As Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, he said, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he lays this foundation of Jesus at the church, proclaiming and preaching the gospel, and all sorts of people are persuaded and come to Christ, and we have the start of a church. We're going to skip over the part where they run them out of town because the town gets all mad and attacks them, and there's a mob, and, you know, that's not in anybody's church growth plans or long-term strategy or anything like that. You know, preach the gospel, get run out of town. Um, we don't see that. It's not in any of those books. And, 
Anyway, but it's in this book. However, the reality today is there's lots of churches that lack this foundation of Jesus Christ. They're filled with people who seem religious but have no relationship with Christ. They profess faith in Christ, but they don't possess him. They know the facts about the gospel, but they have no faith in Christ. And they know the plan of salvation, but they don't know the man of salvation. And they've walked the aisle or raised a hand or been baptized perhaps multiple times, joined the church, even participated in ministry, you know, made a meal for somebody, helped on a, a move, but they've never been regenerated. They lack a heart of flesh. They still live with a heart of stone. And they have this outward religion, but they lack an inner spiritual life. And as a result, they attend church thinking that they're saved when they're really not. And if that's you, you have a massive problem. And if you're not sure whether that's you or not, you still have a massive problem. And you need to talk with someone. You can talk with me or one of the elders or one of the deacons or even some of our leading women. Someone who's willing to talk straight with you about Jesus. And this problem of having unsaved people in the church goes on and on, especially in those churches where the gospel's been watered down, the cross is not preached out of fear of offending people. Sin and hell and wrath aren't presented as realities of life because, quote, that's not how to get more people to come to our church. Now, I read all those things, you know, and I think, man, I must be really offensive. And some of you would probably agree with that. First and foremost, if this is going to be a church where God sets the agenda and not me and not you, then this church needs to be filled with converted people who really do know Jesus. And you can tell if this is a church where people know Jesus because there will be ample evidence of changed lives. Changed lives, verses 2 and 3. Converted people have changed lives. And if you profess faith in Christ but your life hasn't changed then we, the rest of the church, have the right to question your profession of faith. And Paul makes it clear that's actually not much of a problem here in this church. Look at verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts by thanking God not for their building, not for their programs, but for what matters most, the reality of their new life in Christ. And succinctly uh, summarizing God's grace in their life, he gives thanks for their faith, hope, and love. An authentic commitment to Christ will always manifest itself, show itself in a changed life that to one degree or another bears this kind of fruit. And Paul commends their work of faith, which means he recognizes that it's their faith in Christ which motivates their service to him. In other words, their faith in Christ empowers their work for Christ. All believers have faith, but as James 2 tells us, faith always results in works, which is seen in our obedience to Christ in our daily life. Second, the apostle affirms their labor of love. Again, meaning it's their love for God which prompts their labor in the gospel. The word translated labor 
uh, is kopav in the Greek. It means wearisome toil, extraordinary effort, expending oneself to the point of fatigue and exhaustion. So it's not talking about the occasional kind deed. It means going to great lengths on behalf of others. And this is how they were serving each other in the church in Thessalonica. They're laboring hard to reach out to one another, sacrificially giving of themselves and their resources. And it's their love for Christ which generates this kind of love for each other. The more they love Christ, the more they love his people, the more they labor for them and for others. And it's no different for us. Third, he praises their steadfastness of hope. Again, meaning it's their hope in Christ which enables them to keep going in the Christian life in spite of opposition and persecution. Remember, this church got started and immediately there was a riot. So this is a church that's going to see a lot of opposition. There's a lot of people in Thessalonica that don't like this church. But because they're about the unchanging promises of God regarding Christ and his return and their future with him, their lives are anchored in his word and their hope in Christ so gripped them that they're able to press on in overcoming obstacles and enduring opposition. Now, in our world today, we, we've sort of reduced that word hope to some kind of mindless optimism. We say things like, I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope the preacher doesn't talk too long. You know, obviously neither of those things are going to happen today. We've lost the sense of hope in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 1, Colossians 1 tell us that Christ is our hope. Romans 8 tells us we're saved in hope. Hebrews 6 says hope is the anchor of our soul. Christian hope relates to what Christ has done for us and for our salvation. And thus our work is produced by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and our labor is prompted by love in the Lord Jesus Christ and our endurance, our steadfastness is inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the evidence of changed lives. Where do they get these changed lives? I mean, it has to start somewhere and apparently here in this church it started with gospel preaching, verses 4 through 6. Gospel preaching. This work of God's saving grace, so powerful in the lives of the Thessalonians, can be traced back to eternity past when God first chose them to be his own. Look at verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, we talked uh, quite a bit in the high school class about that phrase, loved by God. If you're in Christ, you are loved by God. Period. Doesn't matter what you do, what you say, what you think, how you dress. If you're in Christ, you are loved by God. Doesn't matter whether you have a good day or a bad day. You're loved by God. But then he also says that he has chosen you. And here in unmistakable terms is the humbling doctrine of election. Now, I know there's a lot of people out there who don't like this doctrine. They think it runs counter to human logic, it disturbs our emotions, cuts against the grain of our American mindset of personal freedom and democracy. But it is, nevertheless, clearly taught in Scripture. 
So you may not like it, but you can't run away from it. And I believe no truth so inspires confidence in God to build his church than this one. You know, the criticism is, well, you Presbyterians believe in election, so you don't do evangelism. Okay. Why do we have the largest mission force in the world that any Presbyterian or Reformed church has ever had? We're certainly not the largest Presbyterian and Reformed church, but we got more missionaries than anybody else. Ever. We're starting one new church a week in the United States and Canada. It's a fair amount of churches. costs some money. If we didn't want to reach out to other people, why would we do that? If this doctrine is lacking and we believe we're responsible for our own salvation, then a man-centered church will inevitably result. And the church will be full of unsafe people who think they're doing just fine. Foundational to the spiritual growth of this church or any church is the primacy of the word of God. And this is seen first and foremost in the preaching of the gospel, as Paul says here in verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So a few things in this verse that are essential to good preaching. First, the gospel has to be preached intelligently. It came to them in words. Not only words, but first it came to them in words which they heard and applied to their lives. The apostle communicated the gospel to them through an intelligent, factual, rational, cognitive, straightforward, verbal presentation of gospel truth. And preaching should appeal to the whole person, mind, will, and emotion, but before the heart and will are engaged, it must be understood by the mind. And so the explanation and application of biblical truth is the first order of preaching. Paul emphasized this with Timothy, who he sort of mentored. 1 Timothy 4, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. There's lots of other verses. Romans 10 in particular, people are saved by hearing the word of God. Second, the gospel has to be preached powerfully. Preaching isn't supposed to be an exercise in rhetoric, but a demonstration of the power of God given in his word by his spirit through his messenger. Power in the Christian life comes from the Holy Spirit for any of us. And if the Holy Spirit isn't working in the life of the preacher, then there will be no power regardless of how gifted a speaker he is. If and when I preach in my own strength and my own ability and my own gifting, it just doesn't come across, and it's pretty obvious. I've had sermons that I thought were great, and pretty much everybody just yawned. And they weren't necessarily poorly written, but the spirit wasn't there, and there was no power. 
I've also had sermons that I just wasn't all that sure about. I was convinced needed a lot more work. I didn't think were good enough. And people's lives were changed, much to my surprise. Sermons that are prayed over by me and you, sermons that are agonized over, sermons where the Holy Spirit was present in the writing as well as the giving, tend to be sermons that are powerful and effective. They weren't necessarily well written, but the Spirit was there, and so there was power. Now, that doesn't mean that you like them. Some of the best sermons are really uncomfortable and convicting. Some of you hate them. Some of you tell me that. I hated that sermon. It's all about me. Why are you always talking about me? You know, that's okay. That's the evidence that God's at work in your life. And that's a good thing, even when it's uncomfortable. Now people are trying to figure out, who's he talking about, you know? You know. You know, I'm amazed that despite all the technological advances of our world, God is still pleased to use the foolishness of preaching as the primary means to build his church. And I believe that all other means of presenting the gospel are subordinate and inferior to gospel preaching. They have their place. I'm not saying all the other ways are bad. But none of them have the same power to change lives as does the powerful presence of God coming from the pulpit week after week after week. Last, the gospel has to be preached incarnationally. It's a big word. It means it has to be lived out as well as said. Now, I usually cringe when people put the preacher on a pedestal because I'm well aware that I'm a really big sinner. And I know how easy it is to fall off those pedestals. And I also know how easy it is to fool you into thinking I'm a pretty good guy when I know that I'm way worse than you think. That's okay, you're way worse than you think too. (laughs) However, there does have to be some level of consistency between the words of the preacher and the life of the preacher. This is what Paul means when he says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He's saying his life authenticated his message. He lived as if he really believed this stuff. And the people who listened to him could tell. So they started doing what God's word said because they heard it in Paul's words and they saw it in his life. Look at verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They received the word and they put it into practice. They imitated Paul and Silas and Timothy and Jesus because it was in those lives they saw the gospel lived out. And Paul says, that's okay. You need to learn from someone. In fact, he told the Corinthian church, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We are all influenced, for better or worse, by the people in our lives. So we need to make sure that a lot of the people in our lives are people worth imitating. Jesus himself said, Luke 6, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. And the point is, a church where the gospel is preached and lived will have leaders whose lives are worth following. 
That was true in the church in Thessalonica. As they followed Paul's example and teaching, they grew in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That should be true in our church as well. As you hear the preaching and teaching, as you follow the leadership of the church, then you too should be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. No holiness in the leadership, no holiness in the congregation. Right or wrong, good or bad, like it or not, that's how it works. It's one reason why we're so particular and so slow in choosing and adding more leaders. Because they have to be godly people worth following. And we need time to evaluate that by their life. If we don't do that, the whole church will suffer. Apparently, they didn't have a big problem with that in Thessalonica because we see that this group of church people had repentant faith. Repentant faith, verse 7 to the end. Because the world is hostile to God, it'll be hostile towards the church that God is building. And yet, in spite of great opposition, they couldn't stop talking about Jesus. They, it says they had to share the gospel wherever they went, verse, starting at verse 7. So you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The text tells us the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. That word translated as sounding forth, sounded forth, literally means to blow a trumpet. The gospel went out from them loud and clear. And whatever Paul taught them, they passed it on. They weren't just hearers of the word, they were doers of the word as well. Now the word went out from them to every place they went, and people responded to that word. And they responded because of the truth they heard in the word and the truth they saw in these people's lives. So remember the Thessalonians responded because of the truth they heard from Paul, and they saw how he lived it out, and now they're doing that. They're passing on the truth, and they're living the truth. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There's changed lives here. They had turned to God from idols. Wherever there's a turning to God in faith, there's a turning from idols in repentance. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. If you find one, you'll find the other. In the case of the Thessalonians, the change in their lives the turning to God from idols was so dramatic that it's obvious to everyone. Now, our idols may not live with the Greek gods at Mount Olympus, but they're still here, and they're still alive and well in the church. And even if we're not bowing down at the altar of money, sex, and power, which a lot of us are, there's still a unique set of Christian idols that especially affect those of us in the, in the church. And in their excellent book, How People Change, Paul Tripp and Tim Lane uh, identify seven what they call counterfeit gospels, religious ways that we try to justify ourselves apart from the gospel of God's grace. They call it Christian externalism, things that fill the gap. And I found these really helpful. And as you, we go through these, you might think of which one or two or three or four of these that you gravitate towards. First one they mention is formalism. And they've sort of coined all these words. 
As I participate in the regular meetings and ministries of the church, feel like my life's under control. I'm always in church, but it really has little impact on my heart or how I live, and I become judgmental and impatient with those who don't have the same commitment that I do. We see that in the church. People ought to be as committed as me. There's legalism. I live by the rules, rules I create for myself and rules I create for others. And I feel good if I can keep the rules. And I become arrogant and full of contempt when others don't meet the standards that I'm setting for them. And there's no joy in my life because there's no grace to be celebrated. I think legalism is one of the great dangers of the church today. Mysticism. Presbyterians haven't particularly been known for this one, but it's making a great comeback in the church. You know, I'm engaged in the incessant pursuit of an emotional experience with God. I live for the moments when I feel close to him, and I struggle with discouragement when I don't feel that way, and I can change churches often looking for the one that will give me what I'm looking for. Another one is activism. I recognize the missional nature of Christianity. I'm passionately involved in fixing the broken world. But at the end of the day, my life is more a defense of what's right than this joyful pursuit of Christ. Biblicism. This one we're known for. I know my Bible inside and out, but I don't let it master me. I've reduced the gospel to a mastery of biblical content and theology, so I'm intolerant and critical of those with lesser knowledge. One I think most common is therapism. I'm not sure that's even a word. A guy recently, actually a few years ago, did a study at Christian colleges, a whole bunch of Christian colleges, of Christian college students, people who grew up in the church, and he said, they don't worship the God in the Bible. They worship a moralistic, therapeutic deity. But they think they worship the God of the Bible. These are the kids that grew up in the church. Therapism. I talk a lot about the hurting people in our congregation, and Christ is the only answer for the hurt. Without even realizing it, I've made Christ more therapist than Savior. Have you heard is a greater problem than sin? And I shift my greatest need from my moral failure to my unmet needs. And the last one is socialism, but it's sort of separated. You can see socialism, and that's making fellowship the idol. You know, fellowship, friendships at church become my idol. The body of Christ has replaced Christ. And the gospel is reduced to a network of fulfilling relationships. You know, it's possible that you have a gap in your gospel and it's been filled in one of these ways and you didn't even realize it. And if so, and probably so, then for you, faith and repentance is the order of the day. Now we have the Lord's table we'll be coming to in a few minutes and we're going to give you the opportunity to exercise faith and repentance. You need to turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And you'll probably only be able to do that if, like the Thessalonian church, you know who you're doing it for. And that takes confident hope. 
The last thing we see here is this church is a second coming church. They weren't fascinated with the trends of the world. They were living in anticipation of the return of Christ. Look at verse 10, very last line. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They believed that Jesus was coming back and would rescue them from the divine wrath to come. And that's part of the mission of the church. We're to be, as Titus said, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. No matter how difficult and demanding the days were, the Thessalonians believed that Jesus was coming back and God would make all things right in the end. And despite the world's, uh, the world's opposition, they knew their reward would come from heaven. And if they were looking forward to the return of Christ almost 2,000 years ago, how much closer are we today to his appearing in glory? But sometimes we act like we're farther away. And I'm convinced as I study the word, as we went through the book of Daniel, as we start First and Second Thessalonians, as we get ready to wade into Revelation in the fall, that this hope is one of the defining characteristics of a biblical church. And that church can only be built on God's word by God's spirit with the sole purpose to magnify God's glory. And that church will use God's means to carry out God's work. And the word of God went into Thessalonica. It's a Roman colony that was pagan and heathen and cultic. It was a city that was controlled by one of the greatest political and military powers the world has ever known. And there it reached the hearts and the minds and the lives of people and changed them. And they did it without entertaining them. And they did it without a strategic plan full of goals and objectives. And they did it without emphasizing self-esteem or success. And apparently they didn't even have slick production values for their PowerPoint presentations. But they did have the word of God preached and lived. And they put it into practice with simple things like faith, hope, and love. They turned to God from idols, which is a work produced by faith. They served the living and true God, a labor prompted by love. And they waited for the Lord Jesus Christ, which takes endurance inspired by hope. And you know, God blessed that. And last I checked, he still does. I was reading a fascinating book called Why We're Not Emergent by Two Guys Who Should Be. And that's a whole new movement, church, emerging church. Don't go there. But in this book, one of the authors, his name is Ted Cluck, tells a story about attending a funeral at the church he grew up in. Hadn't been back for years, and one of the older gentlemen, influential in his life, has died. And so he goes back, and he tells this story. Listen carefully. As the story goes, a young school teacher new in town repeatedly visited a bank to make deposits into a savings account. He would come to the same window each time where there happened to work an attractive young woman with dark hair and a nice smile. And he always had a kind word to say to her. And one day, breaking protocol, she asked him, what are you going to do with all this money you're saving? And he replied, 
I'm going to give it all to you. And three years later, they were married. <laughs> and they remained happily married for 40 years until this man passed away. And he writes, today I'm showing my wife the church of my youth. We're early for the 11 o'clock funeral, the funeral of the school teacher who married the attractive bank teller. The church is, as it always was, immaculately clean. There are stained glass windows throughout. And while fashions and movements have come and gone, the church, adjacent to a used car lot, a funeral home, and the firehouse, has stayed the same. Same red carpet, same understated beauty. It's probably been over 20 years since I've been in this building. Walking through the church is like taking a walk back in time. I hug people I haven't hugged in two decades. I visit the fellowship hall downstairs, complete with folding tables, a drop ceiling, bad carpet, and a potluck lunch. This church, like many in America, has survived a great deal. Car wrecks, cancer, extramarital affairs, some bad theology, and the like. But much like the town it's in, it has taken care of its own. It has mourned with those who mourn. It has delivered meals. It has made countless hospital visits. And it has, for the most part, spoken truth and preached the gospel of Christ crucified. It's come alongside single mothers, of which there are many in town. And I find myself this morning very proud of the church and of its people. Those here for the funeral today came to honor the life of a man who lived largely because of a proposition that sometimes outmoded belief that Christ paid the penalty for our sins and that we are, because of that, compelled to live for him and to be like him. And as I look around the church in what is thought to be an insignificant small town in an insignificant part of the country, I see the fruits of this man's life. He's brought together diverse populations. Six-figure administrators from the university are sitting shoulder to shoulder with six-dollar-an-hour workers from the concrete plant who he had may have visited in the hospital. And he says... I am reminded that there are still churches and places in this country where one doesn't have to work at being authentic. Authentic isn't a look you put on in the morning or a new and snappy way to bathe the sanctuary in mystery through the strategic arrangement of candles and projected images. Authentic is bearing one another's burdens. Authentic is people coming to a funeral in their work clothes, car hearts and hospital scrubs, on a Friday morning. That's what a real church looks like. That's what a God-centered church looks like. It's a place where lives turn around. And I pray that's what this church will look like. Life for the long haul. That's what Thessalonians is all about. Think about that. You need to pray.